As we go to prayer, now we're singing about heaven. We're singing about things we've not seen. Uh, but there are different ways we try to understand what it is that as believers we're headed for. And this is a glorious one, one of my favorite songs by far. Uh, but I came across another just a perspective to share with you as we go to prayer. It's from Tim Keller. I was reading this this morning. Just another way to view what it is we're here for this morning and where we're headed. Keller wrote, he said, at the end, and he means when we're home, he said, the reality of heaven will be so astonishing, the joy will be so incredible, and the fulfillment so amazing that the most miserable life on earth will feel like one night in a bad hotel. That's cool, and it's true. Father, thank you that we have so much to look forward to. Father, we understand, we've perhaps heard it explained before, that for those without Christ, this is as good as it's ever going to get. But for those who know Christ, those of us here this morning who love Christ and have been saved by the cross and the grace of the Lord Jesus, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. The best really is yet to come, Father. And we're looking forward to that day, that day of reunion, of, of the scriptures that were just read, of, of falling and worshiping at the feet of Jesus Christ. Father, as, as those scriptures were read, I thought, and we'll be there together, together before Christ. But Father, what we also understand and has been made absolutely clear this morning is there's only one way. And that is through Christ and through the cross, through the the shedding of blood and and his resurrection from the dead. That's our only hope, Father. And and through all the music and the speaking and the conversation and everything that's going to still happen here this morning, Father, my prayer is that we leave with only one takeaway, and that is Jesus is our only hope, but he's also our best hope. Father, as we open your word now, we're just going to continue to build on that. We're going to to ask you to continue to build on that, to make clear what's still unclear. Father, to remind us of of precious truths that some of us have known for a long time. And in all of it, Father, we just want you to have your way. So we would ask, as we ask every Sunday morning, that by your spirit you would come and guide us in truth. That by your spirit you would guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, that you send your spirit to clear the the stuff, the undergrowth, the things that have built up in our lives, even just over the past week, that that might cover our eyes, that might close up our ears, that might harden our hearts against you. Take it all away so that we can see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning in your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in your word. And may we leave singing his praise, only Jesus. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Well, again, good morning. If you have your Bible, we'll just go right to it this morning. I didn't ask you to take it out. If you don't have a Bible, there's certainly some in the back, and we would encourage you to grab one. And uh, turn in your Bible with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Um, I, uh, perhaps you've picked, on it, uh, picked up on it. I hope that you have. And, and I've said this before, and I'll always say it because it, it really is true. We don't plan things this way, but the Lord has a wonderful way of just sort of fitting everything together. I mean, the musicians and I, we talk about what's this week's message, but we allow God to sort of lead uh, in terms of what the, the songs that we sing. And, of course, I have a passage we'll work from, and communion, I, you know, we don't talk to people in advance and say, here's what you need to talk about, and yet God, God sort of just weaves it all together. And, and I want you to know that, that I'm very encouraged 
this morning because it, it all fits. You're not going to hear anything really you haven't already heard before this morning. You're just going to hear it uh, maybe for a few more minutes than you've heard it so far. So, but God is good, and, and, uh, and I'm excited. And, and it tells me, if nothing else, and I don't mean to be presumptuous in any way, that God has something to say to us this morning about what I have to say. It's about what his word says, and it's about Christ. So have your Bible open to Acts chapter 10. We're going to begin reading. It's, it's a bit of a long passage, so we're going to break it up and, and start reading this morning. Uh, in just a couple of minutes, we're going to take it in pieces. But I want to begin to sort of set up where we're headed this morning by saying something that may surprise some of you, may shock some of you. But I want to begin by suggesting this morning that in all the time you've spent reading the Bible, However little or much that may be, particularly the New Testament, uh, the Gospels, and the book of Acts, such as we are in this morning, that in all the time you've ever spent reading the Bible, you've probably not thought of the Apostle Peter as a racist, but he was. Now, not in the sense of the way we might think of racism in our own country, as reprehensible as it's been when you think of the 1960s and the footage we see in places like Mississippi and Alabama and just the, the, the inexcusable things that happened, horrible, horrible things. I'm not talking about it really in that sense at all, that Peter wasn't necessarily that kind of guy, but that Peter was probably a lot like, like most people, maybe in the more sophisticated sense, if I can use that term here correctly, in that in his heart he harbored attitudes of pride and of superiority and, and of even condescensions toward Gentiles, toward those poor souls in the world in which he lived who had the unfortunate circumstance of being born into something other than the Jewish people and the Jewish nation. It was Jews and Gentiles, and as they say, they didn't much care for one another back then in in Peter's day, because Peter was, in fact, the Apostle Peter was a full-blooded descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a Jew, and he'd been raised in Israel in the Jewish faith. By his own testimony, we'll see this morning, he was obedient to the Jewish law. From an early age, he played by the rules. He did the right things. He followed the, the principles, the procedures of worshiping Israel's God. But in all of that, over time, and this is where the flesh gets in and messes with the truth, Peter, like so many others in his culture, and, and this shows up in different ways in different places in Peter's story, just sort of had this instinctive belief that we as Jews are better than the Gentiles, that we are favored, that we are blessed, that we are loved by God as his chosen people, just a little bit more than those, than others who due to their ancestry can't be. I would suggest to you that Peter had a bit of an attitude problem in that respect, and it was shared by and large by, by all of or most of the Jewish people at that time. However, here's the thing. Right before Jesus returned back to heaven, and we've referred to this passage a couple of times over the last few weeks, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus gathered all his disciples together on a hillside, a mountainside perhaps, and he spoke to them and gave them what's called the Great Commission, and he said something very important to them that Peter should have gotten the first time, but here God's going to have to deal with again. We're going to put it up on the screen, and I want you to say it with me. Jesus spoke to his disciples. He said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I want you to say it with me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. All the nations. 
Not some of the nations. Not all the the Jews, the people like you in all the nations. No, go and make disciples. Preach the gospel. Baptize them. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to the whole world. That's why it's called the Great Commission. Anything less would be perhaps the Good Commission, but insufficient. Go make disciples of the whole world. And in the passage we're about to study here this morning, we, through the Apostle Peter's experience, are going to see just how serious Jesus was when he said that. When he said, this is a gospel not for some people, this is a gospel for all people. Because the bottom line, where you want to begin this morning, if you want a tiny little seed thought to begin with, the bottom line of where we're headed this morning is this, is God was about to show Peter that the gospel is an invitation with no limits. The gospel is truly an invitation that has no limits. And and we're going to see that in really three things I want to show you in this story this morning. They're not principles to live by. They're not questions to respond to. Simply we're going to look at sort of three acts or movements in this story that bring this truth to light. And and in sharing, let me just say this incidentally and then we'll get into it. In sharing them with you, there's something we need to understand about just how serious God is about this. About his gospel being for the whole world. Because something you may not know about this story is it's the longest story in the book of Acts. And that's significant. The book of Acts tells a lot of stories. No, no, ink, no, no, uh, no story is given more ink than this one is. And in fact, what happens within this story is so significant that the Lord directs Luke, the author of Acts, in this longest narrative in the book of Acts to tell the story three times of what happened and what we're about to read. And and what's the principle we operate by when we're reading the Bible? When God repeats something, pay attention. He says it three times. I think he wants us to get it. There are three things in it I want you to see this morning, at least in the first telling of it. And it begins with a man named Cornelius and what I would simply term in verses 1 through 8 as a surprising encounter. There is a surprising encounter For this man named Cornelius, grab your Bible, look at it with me. This is what the Word of God says, Acts 10.1. It says, now there was a man at Caesarea. Caesarea, last week we saw Peter, he was in Lydda, then he was in Joppa on the Mediterranean coast. Caesarea was just a little bit farther up the way. At Caesarea, named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. Now stop right there. Because in those two verses, we are presented with with a genuine oddity. Something very, very strange. Because what we've got here, first of all, in verse 1, we're told that Cornelius was a Gentile. He was a member of the Roman army and a man of some significance in the Roman army. Now remember, at, at this point in time, the Romans are occupying the promised land. They are oppressing the people of God, the Jewish people. And Cornelius is a member of that army, only he's not your ordinary soldier. It says he's a centurion in the Italian cohort. A cohort consisted of about 600 men. A centurion was in charge of 100 of them. So he was a man of significance, a man of reputation, authority, and of power. He was also somewhat well-to-do. Centurions were paid roughly five times as much as the ordinary soldier. So Cornelius, as a Gentile of the occupying Roman army, has a lot going for him on one hand. But then we get to verse 2 and we find something very strange and unusual. He was also a seeker of Israel's God. He was a seeker of the very God of the people he had been sent there to keep a lid on, to, to keep under control. He was a seeker of Israel's God. To some extent, we're told in verse 2, he was a practitioner of the, the Jewish faith. 
Now, how, how he managed to do that, I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. I'm, I'm faithful and respected and reputation in the Roman army. I'm also seeking out the God of the people I'm oppressing. I don't know what you do with that except to suffice it to say it's roughly equivalent to flying a Chicago Bears flag in Green Bay, Wisconsin. It's not an easy thing to do. Nor probably popular in either respect, but that's who this guy was. What do we do know? Verse 3. We're told that about the ninth hour of the day, he, that'd be 3 p.m., he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he, this messenger, said to him, Cornelius, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's also called Peter, He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he, Cornelius, summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. If you've ever driven up the road north out of Cedar Rapids to Dubuque, and I spent four years of my life there while I was going to college, you know that in the city of Dubuque, there are two major bridges. There's one that when you arrive in Dubuque, goes straight east out of Dubuque, Iowa, directly into East Dubuque, Illinois. And then you go a little bit farther up the river, there's another major bridge. It heads northeast into the state of Wisconsin. One year when we were in school in Dubuque, they shut the bridge into Illinois down completely for an entire year. They were going to rebuild it and repair it and repaint it and all this stuff, and, and they just no access whatsoever for a solid year, which meant that if you wanted to get from Dubuque, Iowa, on the west side of the Mississippi River to East Dubuque, Illinois, on the east side, leaving aside for a moment the question of why you would want to do that, but if you wanted to do that... If you wanted to do that, here's what you had to do. You had to take a detour. And and to get across that bridge, we're talking about a third of a mile to get from Iowa to Illinois. To cover a journey of normally a third of a mile, you had to drive seven and a half miles out of your way. You had to go north out of Dubuque, northeast into Wisconsin, almost to the little town of Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Then you had to turn south and drive all the way back down into Illinois just to get to the other side of the bridge. And to call that inconvenient was an understatement. It took like 35 minutes to do, believe it or not, to travel a third of a mile. And I suggest that, or I mention that to you, because that's sort of, and I don't mean to oversimplify or, or dumb anything down uh, to, to make it sort of irrelevant, but that's sort of Cornelius' situation here as, as a Gentile, along with any other Gentile, who for whatever reason desired to worship Israel's God. That was his situation, because the deal was, if you wanted to know the one true God, the God of Israel, you couldn't just go to him on your own. It wasn't a direct path. You had to go through Judaism to do it. You had to convert in every way to become obedient to the Old Testament law, to follow their, their, their worship and their practices and, and, you know, say that's right, say that's wrong, say that's easy, that's hard. It's just the way it was. You had to go through Judaism to get to the Lord. And according to verse 2, that's where Cornelius was. He wasn't all the way there yet, but he was moving in that direction. I'd submit that if If a man like Cornelius walked into this place today, we look at him and say, there goes a good religious man. A good religious man. He's playing by the rules. He's doing the right things. He's he's a seeker, we might describe him today. But in the exchange that we just read in verses 3 through 8, 
This angel appears to Cornelius and delivers him a couple of messages that he and I would say all of us need to hear. Here's number one. Message number one, Cornelius, God's been listening. God has paid attention to your prayers. Verse four, he says, Cornelius, understand this, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That word memorial literally means God has held on to this in his memory. He's been thinking about it. He's been paying attention to your prayers. Cornelius, your seeking has not been in vain. But then he comes at him with a second message. And he says, but Cornelius, here's what you've got to understand. And I know this isn't explicit in the text, but it's there. And when you see the retelling of the story, you see it much more clearly. He says, at the same time, Cornelius, God's been paying attention to your prayers, but here's what you need to understand. Sincerity, you are a sincere man in your seeking. Sincerity does not equal salvation. Sincerity does not equal salvation. And as I said, the particulars of that are not expressed until the story's retold a little bit later. Here's what God wanted Cornelius to know. You've got religion, but you don't have a relationship. You have found religion. You're a religious man. You're a good man compared to most of the world perhaps around you, certainly to your fellow Roman soldiers. But you need a relationship. Cornelius, the most important thing in life is still missing. And, And Cornelius, the time has come to close the deal to fill in the blanks, to take care of what you still lack. And so he said, here's what I want you to do. Cornelius, I want you to go send to Joppa for this this man named Peter. He's going to come and he's going to explain everything to you. He will explain to you what you're still missing and how to get what it is you've been after for so long. But before we see that scene unfold and, and, and those next steps take place, we need to pause for just a minute. And you need to ask yourself, we always, I mean, We need to ask ourselves, and and many of you, I know this question is already resolved, but ask yourself, am I like Cornelius? As I sit here this morning, I'm in church, maybe even I'm a good religious person, because I come a couple, three, four times a month. Do I have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ? I might be into religion, I might not, but do I have a relationship Because what was Cornelius? He was a good, generous, God-fearing man, and yet he was still dead in his sins and destined for hell. Say, how do you know that? Keep reading. Go home and read the rest of the story. He wasn't there yet. Something was missing. What I'm saying to you this morning, examine your heart. It's possible to know and not yet believe. Do you believe? You believe what? That Jesus Christ died for your sin, just like he died for mine. You've already heard the message. We've sung it. We've spoken it. We've sung it again. We've read it from the scriptures. It's all over the place. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for sinners and rose from the dead. Do you believe this? That he did it for you? If you don't believe that yet, you really don't need to pay attention to a lot else of what I'm going to say. You need to answer that question by faith. And if you're not ready yet, trust me, I'm coming back to it. We'll get, we'll get back there again this morning still. But do you believe? Do you know Christ? That it's possible to be sincere and yet be sincerely wrong. And that's why Jesus Christ came. And for some of you, that may be why you're here this morning. To find out the answer. Let's see what happened next and I'll show you what I mean. Part 2, verses 9 through 16. In the first eight verses, we meet Cornelius. He, he has a surprising encounter to say the least. Now the the scene shifts in verses 9 through 16 to what I would term a stunning discovery. Now we begin to see the the story 
of the Apostle Peter. And, and here really is proof in my view. You may disagree, that's okay. But here's proof in my view that, that at least to some degree, in the depth of his heart, Peter was something of a racist. That he viewed peoples differently than he should have. And it's also as a result of that where we see that this story is not just about the story of reaching Cornelius, this poor sinner's heart with the gospel. It is also in equal measure, and this is where it applies to so many of us, it's the story of the gospel getting a deeper, greater, firmer grip on the heart of the apostle Peter. Say, what is this thing I have? What is this thing that's been given to me, and and what does it mean? So it's about both men here, 9 through 16. Follow along, I'll show you what, what I mean. On the next day, verse 9, as they, these three messengers from Cornelius, were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And, And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened, verse 16, three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, taken in isolation those eight verses, it sort of looks like somebody cut and pasted this in here by accident. Because weren't we talking about Cornelius a minute ago? This guy, and he's, he's looking for God, and, and we all know, I mean, we know what he needs. He needs Jesus. Peter ought to show up and preach him the gospel and get saved. But now Peter's having visions of animals running all over the place and sheets falling from the sky. What in the world is going on? Somebody mix the order up here somewhere? What's the deal? Read in isolation, it doesn't make sense. But in context, it has everything to do, really, with Cornelius' need for a relationship with Jesus. So let me see. And there's, there's some complicated stuff here that we're not going to necessarily touch on. I want to get to the heart of the matter as quickly as possible and hopefully as correctly as possible as well. And really what we need to understand is, is, is the meaning of this is all sort of wrapped up, I suppose, pun intended, in this vision of a sheet that Peter saw. There's a message in that that he needed. And and look again at verse 12. Verse 11, this great sheet comes down from the sky, lowered by four corners. It's believed that sort of symbolic is representing the four corners of the earth. This is an all-consuming vision. Verse 12, and in it there were all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 14, but Peter said, by no means, Lord. Now, if you know Peter's story, that never works out well. We've seen Peter say that. Oh, no, no, Lord, not me. Remember? He should know by now. Better than it counter the Lord. But he says it. By no means, Lord. Well, Peter, what's your problem? Well, I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. What in the world is Peter talking about? Very, as I said, very quickly, Peter, as we've already established, was a Jew. He was raised in Israel under the the, the stipulations, the laws of the ancient Old Testament Jewish faith. And there were in in the the Old Testament law, there were all sorts of rules that God gave his people about how you're going to live as my people. There are things you can do and things you can't, and, and, and all these sort of specific regulations. And in Leviticus chapter 11, he gave them an entire chapter on food. 
And he said, guys, as my people, there's some stuff you can eat and there's some stuff you can't. There are certain animals that are acceptable. They're called clean. Have at it. But there are other animals that are unclean. You are forbidden to eat them. And to eat them in violation of God's word was, of course, a sin. And Peter knew that. And he says, Lord, wait, wait a second. There's all these animals running around, and they're all mixed up, clean and unclean, and you're telling me kill and eat. I've never done that before. I'm not supposed to do that. I've been told my whole life to make that distinction. I suppose you could say that, that Peter's response here was understandable, but not really. Because if you go back to the Gospels, and you don't need to go there, but perhaps mark it down if you want to dig into it further, Mark 7. Jesus was speaking to his disciples. Peter, as the leader of the disciples, would have been front and center when Jesus said this. And Jesus talks to them about food. And he says, talks about what goes into the body and what comes out of the body and what goes into the mouth and what comes out of the mouth and what really matters. And, and at the end of that little conversation, Mark, the author of the gospel, says this. And in doing so, Jesus declared all foods clean. So way, way back, years ago, Jesus had already said, those old rules don't apply because I'm the, I came to fulfill the law. I came to take care of what you couldn't do Anyway, so Peter should have known that, but it didn't take. He'd forgotten. Something had gone on. He'd missed the message. But Jesus' point was, all foods are clean. You don't have to to have a kosher diet in order to be in a right relationship with God anymore. But Peter hadn't apparently got it back in Mark. So what's God do here in Acts 10? He shows him this vision. How many times? Three times. Again, what's the rule? When God repeats himself, pay attention. Peter... I'm going to give it to you once. I know how you operate, Peter, so I'm going to give it to you twice. Peter, we've been down this road before. One more time so you get the message. It's all clean. And you say, neat. So what? What does that have to do with Cornelius getting the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, here it is. See, the problem with all those Old Testament laws that Peter and probably his fellow apostles, disciples, Jews, were living by, is God had given them originally to his people, yes, to make them different from the world around them. See, as my people, you are different. And and you're going to look different, and you're going to act different, and you're even going to eat and dress different. And God's goal in doing that was to make them set apart and holy. I want you to see that as my people, you, uh, the wor- and I want the world to see that. I want you to be a witness to the world that God's people are different in a good way. But what happened, because when sin gets in the equation, this always happens, those rules ended up not making God's people holy, made them haughty, made them proud. So we're different. We are God's chosen people. We're better. God favors us. He says it in his word, and he, and he loves us, and God wanted, God gave those rules to his people. He wanted them to live lives of holy, joyful obedience as a testimony to the world. But over time, those rules in making them different from all the other nations caused God's people to begin to despise the other nations, to look down on them as less than, the, the very polar opposite of what God wanted. And, and so the bottom line is, why does Peter have this vision? Well, the purpose of the vision is to communicate a message to Peter and to the whole church, which is this, that that just like because of Christ, all, there was no longer any distinction between clean and unclean food. It could all be freely eaten. Here was the real message the Lord was communicating. There's no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile or anybody else. All can be freely saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through anybody else. There's no other avenue. There's no other detour. There's no other path. You go to Jesus and be saved. And Peter, it applies to them as much as it does to you and 
And why would God have had to teach Peter this lesson unless Peter had a problem with it? And you see later on in Acts, it comes back. He still has it, but God's dealing with it. And in doing so, brings him to the third thing I want you to see here that I need to see as well. It brought Peter to to what I would call a pivotal moment of decision. God's working some stuff out in Peter to make him ready to, to push the gospel out to the next circle, the whole world. But it puts him at a pivotal moment of decision. Grab your Bible, look at verse 17. We'll read down to the end of this morning's passage. It says, Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as, as to what this vision he had seen might be, Peter's thinking, this has to be more than I can order bacon with breakfast. There's got to be more to it. He says, Behold, sorry, the men who... That's what I thought. Anyway, that's the men who sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, accompany them without misgivings, for I've sent them myself. And so Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I'm the one you're looking for. What's the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion... A righteous and God-fearing man, Peter knows, Gentile, right there, well spoken of by the entire nation of Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. If you were here last week, you remember we talked about that God was giving Peter divine appointments. As Peter was going about his business, God kept bringing people into his path and, and doing incredible things to him and great things for the gospel, but also great things in the life of Peter. And we saw two of those divine appointments last week. The first one, uh, he was confronted with God's power to heal. He was brought to that paralytic for eight years, lying on his mat, and God restores him up to perfect health. And then right after that, he, he's confronted with God's power to restore life. He raises Tabitha, this godly woman from the dead. Those are just preludes to what God does here. Because here now in Acts chapter 10, Peter is confronted with God's power to save anybody. Say anybody. anybody. Power to save anybody. No matter who they are, what they've done, where they're from, how bad they've sinned, color of their sin, country, uh, color of their skin, color of their or, uh, country of their origin, all of it. God's power to save. And it brought Peter to a pivotal moment of decision. Now, it came his way, another divine appointment. Three guys knocking at the door, coming to him. Peter didn't manufacture it. He didn't create a show. God brought the opportunity to him. But pay attention. Peter met that opportunity. He says he came down off the roof to answer the door, armed with the word of God. God had spoken to him clearly. He said, Peter, this is my deal. I, look at your Bible, I sent them myself to you. Okay, now, God's brought an, a, an opportunity my way, and, and I'm armed with the truth of God's word. He's saying, there's something here he wants me to do. There's a message here he wants me to, to speak. There's a, a responsibility I have to respond to. And so, he goes. He goes to the door. He inquires what they're there for. Verse 22, the messengers respond. And in that instant, Peter has to start making decisions on the fly right away. You say, what kind of decisions? What am I going to do? Specifically, he had to begin to decide in a moment the answer to questions like, do I believe God arranged this meeting? Or do I think just stuff happens by chance? Coincidences. Do I believe this is a God-designed moment? 
And if so, will I take God at his word that he's the one who set it up and he has me here for a reason? And will I, can I trust that if I do what it seems like God's telling me to do, but this is new, that he'll show up, that he'll be faithful, that he has a plan. I mean, in a moment of time, Peter has to decide all those things. And, and evidently, verse 23, Peter got it right on all three counts and however any, uh, many other questions he had to deal with. Because verse 23 says, he invited them in and he gave them lodging. And while next week we'll see what followed, this morning I don't think we need to go any further. You can read ahead, there's no secret. Go home and read it, find out what happened. But for the moment, we don't need to go there. Because somehow I believe... That in this room, every single one of us, in one respect or another, are standing in Peter's sandals. And we have similar decisions to make and to work through. Let me give you three questions. This may not be the sum total. These are just three. Where, you say, where, where we see that what this has to do with us. Question number one, ask yourself, based on, not what I've said, but, but what we see unfolding here in God's word. Number one, is there anyone in the world, personalize it, is there anyone in my world where I operate and do my thing, who I struggle to believe God can save. Who I struggle to believe God will save because of the way, for whatever reason, because of the way they are, the things they've done, the hardness of their heart. And there's just some people that I look at and go, man, I don't know, Lord. What's the message here? He can. And so the challenge is don't give up hope. Keep seeking an opportunity. Keep praying for the door to open. Don't give up. Question number two, is there anyone in the world? Is there anyone in my world? Here's a tougher one, and this is sort of maybe where Peter was. Who kind of, I mean, I would never say this out loud, but if, if, if I really had to be honest, I would say maybe really isn't worth saving. Those people, that kind of person, people who've done fill in the blank. The kind of thing where, again, not proud of it in any degree, but if I was honest, I'd say, you know, if they don't make it to heaven, really in my heart, I, do I feel like I've lost anything? Is there? The message here is, is that my sin's not for more forgivable than theirs. So what do I need to do if that's where my heart is? I need to repent. I do. Third, and this will apply to some of you perhaps here this morning in a very specific and pointed way. We brought it up. I said I'd do it again. Do I need to trust Jesus Christ today? Do I know Jesus Christ? Have I trusted Jesus Christ? Have I said, this guy is the Son of God. He did die for my sin. He rose from the dead on my behalf. And he's my only hope. Are you there? Do you need him? If that's where you are, you have a need. Your need is to respond now. I'm suggesting that in one way or another, we're all at a pivotal moment of decision. Maybe it's entirely different. Maybe God's saying something totally otherwise to your heart. That's fine. But if God is bringing any one of us here this morning to a moment of decision, we have to decide what we're going to do with it. And there's one way, one common way in which we all respond. And it is through, and it's true in all three cases here, through prayer. We go to him in prayer. And I'm picking on that specifically because it's all over this story. We just haven't talked about it yet. So let me mention this and then we'll bring it together and be done. You may not have noticed it as we read through. But if you go back and look, what you see is in the first eight verses, 
Cornelius' surprising encounter, and in the next eight verses, Peter's stunning discovery, both were the product of time in prayer. Did you see that? Look at verse 2. What does it say about Cornelius? He feared God. He gave many alms to the Jewish people, and I wish this could be said about me. He prayed to God continually, all the time. And in verse 4, what did the angel say? It's your prayers have ascended as a memorial for God. Well, that wasn't just true of Cornelius, as stunning as that is, but it's also true of Peter, because what does it say about Peter in verse 9? On the next day, it's just about lunchtime, they're on their way up, Peter went up to the housetop about the sixth hour to, what's your Bible say? Pray. This is not an accident. This is not incidental information. This passage is all about what happens in prayer. Because I think we normally, and I'm, I, me too, we normally think about prayer as a place where I go to do business with God. You know what prayer also is? It's where God does business with us. It's where God speaks to us if we'll listen. I don't think it's a coincidence at all that Cornelius' need and Peter's prejudice both got dealt with in the context of prayer. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you today's big idea and then we're going to pray. But I'm not just going to pray. You're going to pray. We're just going to take a couple of minutes, moments, quietly. Is there any business I need to do with God in the quietness of my heart to do it? So here's the big idea. Probably put this one together yourself. It's not a surprise. The big idea of what we've looked at this morning is that the gospel is God's gift to the world. It's his gift to the world. It is for all who will believe. No fine print. Now, with that in mind, let's bow our heads. And I'll I'll pray in a moment like I always do, and then we'll sing. But, you know, sometimes we talk a lot about prayer, and we talk a lot about responding, and then, and I'm guilty of this, I give you zero opportunity to do it. Go home and pray about it and work it out. Not today. I don't know what you need to pray about. Maybe nothing. Maybe you need to pray for someone. But let's bow our heads and just take, and I know it gets uncomfortable, but let's just be quiet for a moment. If there's someone who you've given up on, just hand them back over to the Lord. If, if there's a, a, a prejudice in your heart, toward maybe even toward other believers, to p- repent of it and to lay it down. And if you need Christ, <laughs> invite him in. Just a couple moments of quiet. Let's do business with them. Father, I'm thankful that you show us your servants' best sides and their ugliest ones as well. And Lord, I'm not trying to pick on Peter, but we're shown a side of him here where he was at at the very least struggling to come to grips with the gospel and who it was for and how it applied. Father, you know we struggle all in our hearts in, in different ways at different times. Father, there are some folks who we just wonder, is God ever going to move in their heart? Why would you, Lord, lead me to pray for this person for months and years and decades with no evident movement? Father, would you help us not to give up hope? Father, we look at the world we live in and and we, we grade sin on some sort of curve. And we look at certain people and I don't know, I don't know. 
And Lord, I've been guilty of it too. Father, convince us, convict us that the gospel is for all. And Father, may that not, not discourage or, or depress us in some way that, that maybe we didn't carry around a weight of guilt, but just to see how much greater than all you really are and how amazing the gift of the gospel is. And God, I pray for that handful of folks here this morning who don't truly yet or maybe didn't until a moment ago truly know Jesus. And I plead with you to usher them into your kingdom today as believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray, we, we pray that you would seal the truth of it to your heart and cause the error of any error in the preaching to be forgotten so that we truly will leave singing and praising Jesus only in whose name we pray. Amen.